2: Greetings and salutations, my fellow artists. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast that celebrates the culture of creativity. I'm your host, Sourdough. And on today's episode, I'm honored to be joined by a friend of mine who's likely the hardest working man I know. He is an entrepreneur who owns multiple businesses and fashion, music, movies, and art. He manufactures clothing, manages bands, produces films curates art exhibitions and even has a syndicated radio show he's an avid surfer who rips and a boxer with a mean jab he's a real life hero who helped save his neighborhood when the malibu fires were raging last
1: year i'm honored to have the special dude in the studio today the one and only kevin zinger Thanks, brother. It's an honor to be here, man. It's an awesome place. It's the zinger and the sourdough together. Dude. <laughs> I like hey, it. Hey, what could go wrong, right? Uh, man,
2: that's, that's great. It's great to have you here. I know we've had a heck of a time coordinating between your crazy schedule
1: and my crazy schedule. For sure, but I'm stoked to be here, man. That's great. You showed me around, and you've got an amazing taste in art, so... That's always to be respected and honored for sure.
2: Thank you, brother. Thank yeah. you. You know, it's, it's interesting. People come into the studio and they comment on the art. And I think part of what resonates is that it has meaning to me. Mm. Therefore, it has meaning to other people. Like it somehow emanates or exudes, you know, positive energy because it's special to me or there's meaning or a story behind it. It's not expensive. I yeah. mean, you know, like, one of the pieces I'm in the other room I got at a flea market for five bucks. You know, I reframed it, and people think it's the coolest fucking
1: thing. <laughs> that that is the craziest thing about art, right? Just the the price tag does not always mean that it's the best, right? That's because right. Because it all depends on what it means to you. So some of my favorite pieces that are in my house are some of the most extremely inexpensive pieces That's that right. I you own. Know? That's
2: right, because they they make you feel good for That's some right. reason,
1: yep. right? That's right. Do
2: you even know how many pieces of art you have in your collection? God,
1: I don't I don't even know. <laughs> I, I don't. I, I don't mean, know how many you know, I have. I collect art like my girlfriend collects shoes and it's just and it's always been even before I ventured to try to help artists or get in the quote-unquote art world, that's always been my thing and I've just the collection is I need a new house a bigger office and a bigger garage just to store it all because it's, you know, I I mean, I walked in here earlier and I saw a piece on the wall and I instantly asked you how much can I get a piece from that artist for, because I thought it was awesome. And there was a connection with me as well. And then, Two seconds afterwards, I'm like, where are you going to put it? You know, like, I need
2: another piece of art, like, my girlfriend needs another pair of shoes. Yeah,
1: (laughs) pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe I could get rid of her shoe collection and add (laughs) some more. Don't do that. That's not going to go well. (laughs) For sure. So, so when, I mean, did you grow up loving art? Like, how did you fall in love with art? Yeah, I mean, I grew up sort of like, you know, Southern California kid, born and raised here. So I grew up around sort of like surf and skate culture. Punk rock, hip hop, like those were kind of like my things as a kid, right? So the artwork was always sort of like driving forces behind those communities. A lot of the, you know, the artists that I like, you know, I don't know if they're inspired or whatever, but came from that community. And so, yeah, it's just always been a part of my DNA, like, and what I've liked. I mean, even when I was a kid, I would, you know, you find badass album covers or whatever it was and you would stick that on your wall right those are when you're 13 14 years old those are your early art collections as far as like what are you sticking on your wall right what album covers or whatever it is when I got a little bit older and I started to do you know I used to own a surf and skate shop in San Diego and for me you know I didn't want to put the cliche like pictures on the wall of you know some companies. Team writer, or whatever it was. And so we literally, you know, I commissioned somebody to come in and they blasted one side of the wall. And then I commissioned another artist to come in. I mean, this was, you know, 1995 before, you know, now every store you walk into has that. But yeah, I I guess the answer is, is I've always loved art and sort of fell ass backwards into it just for the love of it. You know what I mean? So yeah, I'm an avid collector and fan beyond just trying to help people on the business side as well.
2: Well, but right. But I mean, like your whole career is art centric.
1: Yeah. I sure. mean,
2: it's fascinating to hear about your journey. And if I remember right, I mean, you you, you essentially cut your teeth in the music world. Mm, that's right. right. Yeah. And then that led into fashion, which sort of led into art.
1: Yeah. And now you've built this life. Yeah, I mean it's all very sort of I mean look, like a guy like me if I didn't do the things that I loved, I mean I didn't have a college education, I had no financial leg up in the world or anything like that. I didn't come from money or anything like that. So it was for me it was work extremely hard at the things that you love and hopefully try to make a living at yeah, it. So yeah. when I was younger, I was trying to be a pro surfer when I was young. And I was smart enough to realize that I really wasn't that good. So, I needed to figure something else out. And when I was 18 or 19, I started throwing concerts. So, what happened was a surf movie would come out. Sometimes I would help the surf movie with music, right? And then I would premiere the movie and get the bands to play, right? Yeah. So, that was, you know, the really early days. And then, you know, by the time I was 19 I was doing all these like weekly clubs and what I would do is because I grew up in LA so I was hip to the music scene up here I would bring a bunch of the bands and stuff down to San Diego and they were bands that were not very big at all but eventually through me branding these clubs and using the moniker SRH that I was doing it with people knew if I go to this club it's going to be a certain kind of entertainment or a certain kind of level, right? And, you know, over the years, those bands were, you know, Sublime, Pennywise, Offspring, you know, some of the iconic bands to come from, you know, and for us, it was just those were our friends. And that was the music that I listened to. And I didn't, you know, I didn't listen to the radio. I listened to underground punk rock and hip hop. So that's what we booked. Along that journey, in the early days, I used to have a clothing sponsor for surfing and, it was called Gotcha and you know, it was very bright, it was very flashy, the clothes. I never even wore the stuff to be yeah. honest with you. I, you know, contractually had to put a sticker on my board but you know, their stuff, you know, no offense to them but it just wasn't very good stuff. wasn't so I would, your style. I, yeah, it wasn't my style. I was, right. You know, I basically still wear the same thing now that I did when I was 19 years old. Yeah. You know, dicky shorts, a white shirt and right. you know, I've never really changed my style but, so I would, I would do these like surf contests and stuff for them and eventually what happened was because I was doing so many nightclubs and doing so many concerts I wasn't like I wasn't as active in like the surfing world to say I should have been and eventually they dropped me as a sponsor and when they dropped me as a sponsor I was like cool I'm gonna start my own clothing company and I just knew at that time that I didn't like what was going on in the surf skate world I didn't like that kind of fashion mm-hmm. and I knew that my bet was there was other people like me, sure. right? So I basically was like, I, and I knew nothing about the clothing industry. I mean, literally less than nothing. And I took a lot of hard lessons, hard lessons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, hard, a lot, lot of yeah. hard financial lessons. But what I did was, was I would take the money from the clubs and the concerts that I was throwing, and I would put them into building this clothing company. And I would give clothes to the bands that we were putting on. And I basically, there was a few like artists that would do my flyers. One was a tattoo artist named Droopy. We still use him to this day. He's an incredible tattoo artist. And, you know, he does a little bit of fine art stuff as well. And it's great stuff. But he was the guy that we, you know, he designed all our original designs. And, you know, we put out these shirts and we put out these hats. And all of a sudden, it sort of like, Built this little scene, right? Yeah, because right. we had the music, we had the clothes, and, you know, like I said, there was a lot of hard learning curve, but we built a little lifestyle around that. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and it's, it strikes me that you were sort of lucky enough to be at the right place in the right time, too, right? Yeah, I was, I guess I was smart enough to recognize this music is really cool. Mm-hmm. There's a fashion that went along with it, right? Yeah. And a lifestyle that went along with it that. I thought that more people would like. So, you know, my only skill in life is kind of like looking into the future and kind of seeing what might come next, right? Yeah. And on that one, I kind of got ahead of it. Right. A lot of times I've been too ahead of things, right? Because yeah. like, sometimes you're like, oh, I'm going to do this. And then you do it for three years and you get burnt on it. And then somebody else picks it up right. and they blow it up, right? Yeah. But you know, that's fine too. Do you consider yourself an artist? No, not at all. Really? No. But you create yeah. I mean, I would consider myself, I hate the word curate more than anything, but like curating lifestyles a little bit, right? I, oh, I use curate in your intro. <laughs> like, right. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's right. I just don't know why. I, just, I don't hate the actual word. I hate how many people loosely use it to associate yes. themselves yes. these days. <laughs> yes. yes.
2: Well, no, it's interesting because I mean, I only ask this question about, do you consider yourself an artist? Because people ask me the same question and I, I think I have such a I sort of put artists on a pedestal, like, you know, mm. they're sort of like heroes to me and like sacred to me. Yeah. And so, it's like, the does a wise man call himself wise? Mm. Probably not, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. it's not for me to say I'm an artist. I'll let other people determine that I'm an artist, but I do know that I make shit all the time. I mm. create shit all the time. I have ideas. I see things that other people don't see. So, okay, maybe I'm an artist, but I'm not painting. I'm not, you know, doing
1: shows, but, yeah. you know, we're creating. Yeah. I mean if I tried to paint, there would be nobody in the world that would even like it, including my mother, right? So,
2: (laughs) And she loves you unconditionally. Yeah, she loves me unconditionally. (laughs) So, even
1: even she would say that I think what I'm good at is is basically bringing different people together to build a little bit of a lifestyle and on the artistic side, like I have a little bit of vision of what I want and clearly other people have wanted that and I'm good at finding XYZ artist or XYZ person to help me put together that vision to bring it together. I don't know that that's- Well, and also though, I mean, it it strikes me that, you know, countless
2: artists have really come to rely on you and trust you, Mm. you know, to manage them, to book them, any number of things. What do you think they see in you? What do you think you bring that
1: they want and need so badly? I mean, I think it applies to you too, right? I think people trust us, I call it bilingual and I don't mean that in the traditional sense of I speak two languages. I mean, you can go into a corporate setting and there's a certain like dialogue that happens in a corporate setting, right? And then you can go into the craziest neighborhood or the craziest art gallery or the craziest whatever it is Yeah. and you can relate to those people on that kind of a level too, right? I think maybe because of my background and how I came up, there's like a level of trust, right? Because there's that like you're one of us kind of thing, right? right, Like in life, like especially with artists, right? There's this us versus them kind of mentality, right? So, people like us, we can speak to both sides of that, right? right. The corporate side, the artistic side, whatever it is. And, you know, I think that's an important service that we can give to artists, right? And I think the relatable part, look, I mean... Like I said, like, I don't consider myself smarter than anybody. I don't consider myself, you know, I didn't have the college background. I didn't have the financial luck in life to be set up, right? But what I did have was I would work harder than anybody, right? And outwork everybody. And I think artists appreciate that. Yep. And the other thing was that I do what I say. And if there's something that I can't pull off, I don't bullshit anybody. I'll tell you the real reason why I couldn't pull it off. So I think a lot of people like us because we do what we say and we're not bullshitting. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot, especially with artists, right? Like there's a million people that will come through an artist's life through the course of their career and, you know gas them up like oh you should be this and you should be that and i know a guy here and we're gonna make millions and you know and and it's so easy to believe that you know what i mean and you want to believe that as an artist right and i'm not saying don't believe it i'm saying take it with a grain of salt you know what i mean because The old saying's true. If it's too good to be true.
2: I was just going to say you that. You know what I yeah, mean? That's right. So, yeah. That's right. Yeah. My whole thing is like, you know, I try to under promise and over deliver. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. For you sure. Know? And yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've worked, as you know, with artists for a long time as well. And I sort of think about, well, you know, why do I enjoy it first of all, but like, what am I bringing to the party? And I think, you know, really at the end of the day, it's like, if I believe in you, like, nobody's going to be more convincing than me. Mm. Like, I'm the best cheerleader. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, you know, if I believe in you 100%. and see you and like you, I have to like you too, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, I have to respect you. Yeah, I have to dig your work. I can dig your work and if you're an asshole, I can't do it, you yeah. know? But, you know, there was a time in Chicago, I was working as an artist rep. I had been a artist, commercial artist, graphic designer, freelancer, mm. working in, you know, ad agencies or whatever. But I got tired of freelancing or whatever, that hustle. But the company, one of the companies that offered, that rep me as a freelancer, offered me a job as a rep. And I did very well in that context because, you know, I only worked with artists that I liked and that were fucking awesome. And, you know, when I believe in you, I'm fucking very persuasive, you Mm -hmm. know? And so, it was just, I felt like that was like a golden time in life because I just felt like, I was doing meaningful work cuz I was putting, you know, money in people's pockets. Mm. And you know, and that was meaningful. They appreciated For that. Sure. And by the way, like I was doing something that they didn't enjoy doing, which was selling.
1: Mm. Right? Yeah, and I mean, look, you're still doing that to this day, right? Like I mean, at the end of the day, working with people that you like is important, right? But every artist and every person has their own nuances, yeah, right? So right. it's a, it's a difficult landscape to navigate sometimes emotionally right because Mm -hmm. you're like but what you're doing with like the conference that you put on like look like the art world that we live in like the perception might be on the outside that there's all this money and everybody's getting rich and that's just not the case you know what i mean and a lot of the artists that we deal with or try to help like you're just trying to make a few bucks yourself but more importantly make it so that they don't have to go get a day job you know what i mean and that they can actually produce their art you're trying to give them a platform to be able to go out and sell their works or you know what i mean so that they can actually live as an artist right so like when you put on something like the convention or the conference that you're putting on right that gives people that kind of a platform and you know a lot of people on the outside world might think that like you know, we're all making so much it's just not the case. We're still as much attention has been brought onto the, you know, whatever you want to call it, subgenre of art that we live in now mm-hmm. in the last, you know, five years, it's still n- people aren't getting rich. No, you know what it's I mean? A struggle, so, like, man. so there is a part of it of like some of that, you know, doing it for the right reasons, giving yep. artists a platform yep. and seeing something grow is is as much of the reward as the monetary part, right? 100%. Yeah, Yeah.
2: I mean, for so much of this, you know, the compensation and the reward is in the process and in Mm. the journey, you know? It's like, we love what we do. We get up, we do it every day and obviously we're trying to make a buck and we're trying to make a few bucks and we're Mm. trying to make a lot of bucks. But even if we don't, we're still loving the process. Right. And, and it is true, right? I mean, I think there is this mystique and there is this hype around the world that we operate in. And I think, you know, it's super sexy, right? It's super cool, like, but that doesn't mean that the people are getting rich. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you, know? It's yeah. A, you know, the old saying about what all the glitters is in gold. I mean, it's a fucking struggle out there,
1: Yeah, you know? Yeah. I mean, I can remember when I was doing a club back in the day and it was Sublime was playing and this was before Obviously, Sublime – well, Sublime didn't blow up until after Bradley passed away. But, you know, they were a local band from Orange County coming down to San Diego. They didn't have a huge following. And we were doing it. It was like $5 to get in, right? And That's amazing. That's uh, so great. Yeah. And it was literally like 50 cent drafts and $5 to get in. I want a time machine so I could go back to that party. Me too. And the crazy part is a lot of those events happened – pre-internet right so it's yeah. like it almost like it didn't happen right. you know what That's I mean right. yeah. which is kind of cool too because for those of us that were there we have our own yes. little like yes. hidden gem of knowledge or memories about those things but so I'm doing this club you know 20 plus years of rock and roll my memory not the greatest but I'll always remember this right a guy came up to me and he wasn't being nice when he said this he was it was a little bit of like Kind of ball busting and a little bit of jealousy that was intertwined mm-hmm. with it. But he was like, he was like, "Yeah, man, you're making a killing doing this tonight, right?" Because there was whatever four or five hundred people in yeah in the club watching Sublime, right? I looked at him, I was like, "Yeah, you really think so, huh?" Right? He's like, "Yeah, man, you're just making a killing, like blah 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 blah." I was like, "Let me ask you a few questions, man." I said, "How much do you think the band cost tonight?" Right. He said some number, the number wasn't right. You know. I said, how much do you think I pay the door girl? How much do you think I pay for the flyers? How much do you think the venue yeah. rental was? Right. How much right. do you think all these things were? Right? Yeah. And after the whole process, we got to some number of like right. $2,000 or whatever it was. Yeah. Right, And yeah. I said, okay. And now this club, I said, how much is it to get in here tonight? And he goes, I don't know, you put me on the guest list. I go, exactly. <laughs> but for those of the paid, it was yeah. $5, right? Yeah, to right. get in, right? right? So even if four or 500 people paid, I just broke even, you right. know what I mean? Right. And right. His worked whole, my like, ass off to break even. Yeah, yeah, his whole dynamic yeah. changed, you know yes, what I mean? Right, because it's right. really easy to sit there and go, Oh, yeah, this, you know, 500 people, five yeah. bucks, like you're yeah. rich. Like, yeah. you know, you got and, in for free. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, what you're
2: talking about, right, is like so powerful because, you know, you hear the same story in different ways and different, you know, contexts in the arts, you know, in any number of places. Like, so what I'm getting at is like, I've, you know, one of our guests a few episodes ago was a, you know, professional guitarist by the name of Mike Herring. They call him Fish. Mm. And Fish is – I mean, he's a pro, right? I mean, he's toured with Prince and he's toured with Christina Aguilera for 17 years. Like, I mean, you know, he's that guy. He's a mm. hired gun, right? And, you know, he was telling us about, you know, a session he did for Sony. Sony called him up, said, hey, you know, we want you to come do this session, this artist, blah, 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 blah. Never got paid. You
1: know, happens all the time.
2: Fucking yeah, happens all the ha- happens time. All right. Time. So I'm just saying, like, yeah, yeah. you know, this this, all this glamour of being an artist yeah. or working in the arts, like artists bring the goods, artists deliver. That's right. And and then some. Yeah. And but whether or not they get
1: paid is another matter altogether. Yeah, I mean the art world, right? Like somebody will say, like, oh, X Y Z artists, you know, I saw that they sold the piece for fifteen thousand dollars. Right. Mm-hmm. You're like, sure true, right? But the gallery took a cut, this took a cut, is yeah. they've got to pay for their manager and, yeah. and they're not selling a $15,000 piece every day, right? So right. your perception of them getting rich is not yeah. quite true, right? Yeah. Because if they sell a $15,000 piece every three months and they pay the gallery, they pay this, they pay that, right? Right? it's hard to make a living, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it really is. I have
2: to say, you know, when I follow you on Instagram or whatever, I see your life, you know, and you're surfing and you're boxing and stuff. Like, it just is so inspiring. I mean, yeah, is you. that your therapy? Like, surfing every day, yeah, boxing every day? For like- sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, my routine is pretty, you know, regimented where I wake up every morning and if the waves aren't a certain size, I go and train boxing or jujitsu or some sort of martial art. And if the waves are there, then I surf. But for me, I need that hour and a half in the morning to sort of like get my body and get whatever aggression out in the morning to get ready for the day. And like, as long as I have that time in the morning, it's – I'm usually okay for another 12 or 14 hour long day, right? But when it's when I don't get that, then sometimes I can get a little bit eggy, you know what I mean? (laughs) So, I've had to apologize to a few employees every once in a while. But yeah, I'm a firm believer in, you know, look, in the early days of doing all this, right? It was party all night, surf in the morning, work all day, right? But, you know, now I've thrown away the party part, right? And, you know, I'm 47 years old. You've got to it takes me a little bit. You don't bounce back like yeah, you used to. Yeah, you don't to. bounce back as I used to. <laughs> I'm no, speaking for from sure. personal experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But for me, it's like the actual physical part of surfing or boxing or kickboxing or whatever it is, really, it helps me mentally for sure, 100%. You,
2: I mean, growing up at Mission Beach, I'm guessing that you learned to surf very early
1: on. Yeah, yeah. I started surfing when I was – God – 9 years old or yeah. something. When did like you that. start MMA and jiu-jitsu? Uh, 11. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I started be amazing. I, I started doing, you know, karate when I was yeah. really really young like yeah. lot, most kids do, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? But seriously fighting in a professional setting probably about Eight years ago. Yeah, right. Eight, nine years ago.
2: So, yeah, because that was one of my questions because when I see photos of you surfing, I mean, I'm a, pff, I've am a, tried to surf. I get my ass kicked. It's fun, but I, I am not a surfer. I see photos of you and I think to myself, my God, Kevin's a pro. Like, you look <laughs> like a fucking pro. Yeah, thank you. To me, certainly. But you
1: did surf professionally
2: for, for yeah, a bit. When yeah. I was a kid, that, yeah. I mean, that
1: was, you know, every kid has that sort of thing yeah. that they want to yeah, do, right? right? Mine was surfing. I was pretty good in the context of like, the pro surfers back then. There wasn't a lot of money back then. Sure. You know what I mean? What differentiated me was I was one of the few guys that was like trying to do like big airs and like mm-hmm. s- taking skating to surfing. Oh, right. Interesting. So okay. back then it was, you know, Christian Fletcher and there was only a handful of guys that were doing that. Yeah. So that kind of set me apart from everybody else, but that hadn't been quite like accepted by the mainstream surf media. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I was good enough to be able to straight face, go to a sponsor and ask for money, but I I was also not that good where I was going to make any sort of real living at it, okay. if that makes any sense. Yeah, so, sure. You know, I was making a thousand bucks a month from my sponsors or whatever it was. Right, and, right. you know, I was smart enough back then to go. But through surfing and through action sports skating, that's the reason why I met most of the bands I worked with in the early days that's the, you know what I mean? That yeah. was really the thing that set me up right. for what I do today, you right. know? And I still, you know, obviously I'm still an avid surfer and still go yeah. out there and try to do it and compete on a higher level than probably what my age calls for. But <laughs> <laughs> You're in the Clydesdale class or Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I, I still, I, I won a master's contest like a year ago, I think it was. And it was bittersweet, right? Because they're like, you know, first place trophy. And you're like, yeah. And then you're like, wow, I'm really surfing against some older dudes here. <laughs>
2: okay.
1: Well, we won't, we won't dwell on that. We'll <laughs> dwell on the trophy. Which reminds me like you were surfing not too long ago and damn near ripped your ear off. I did rip my ear off. Yeah. Me and a buddy, Makua Rothman. Actually, he's like one of the best big wave surfers in the world and I've been friends with him for years and we work together too. I manage his surfing career and his music career but we were just literally out screwing around in tiny little waves and we were foiling which is like a new version of surfing where the board kind of lifts up out of the yeah, water. Yeah, And literally we were the only two guys out and these beginner surfers showed up and like clearly these guys had never surfed one day in their lives. And they had, you know, big old long boards. Whoever told them to get those was giving them some bad advice. But these guys sort of like paddled out right in the middle of us. And I don't like foiling around anybody because, you know, it is a dangerous thing. So I paddled up the beach to get away from everybody. Long story longer, when I caught a wave, the foil takes you a long way. And I was going along and out of the corner of my eye, I saw one of the guys coming at me sideways with the board up. So, I jumped off the front of my board and covered up in like a boxing stance, putting my hands over my head. And I mean, it felt like Mike Tyson hit me with an ax. It was – I'm still not 100% sure what hit me, whether it was his fin or whether it was the tail of his board or whether it was the foil or whatever it was. But whatever hit me, it was strong enough where it almost put me out. Right. And I was like, you know – boxing and doing MMA, I knew like, you know, don't go out, don't go out. Obviously, you're in the water. And, you know, I was literally feeling like I was going to pass out, but I pulled myself out of that. And when I jumped out of the water, I mean, came back up, he was maybe a foot from me, the guy. And, you know, he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And, you know, the guy didn't know what he was doing. So, you can't get mad at him. You know what I mean? But at the time, I was just like, just Get away from me because more waves were coming and, you know, I I just wanted to put some separation between us. Another wave came under, I reached up and when I put my finger on my head, my finger literally went into my head and I could feel my earlobe was hanging off and I was like, oh, this isn't good. So, when I came up, Makua had caught in a wave and was on the other side of me that wasn't messed up. So, when I popped back up, I was like, hey, I was like, I got to get some stitches. And he made some joke because he didn't see that side of my head. And when I turned around and I showed him the side of my head that was messed up, I could see his facial expression just change. And, you know, he's a really heavy gnarly human being yeah. right like if yeah. you got like a couple stitches he would look at you like oh bro right. put some super glue on it you're fine you know what, <laughs> what i mean so when yeah. i saw his expression like that it almost made me a little bit more panicked yeah, you know what i right, mean i was right. like oh shit this must be real because yeah he was like you know in a very hawaiian way he was like oh cuz we need to go to the doctor right now you know what i mean yeah so made it out of the water. And, you know, getting my wetsuit off over my head was an interesting experience to say the least with my ear hanging off. But, you know, lucky enough, Makua ran to go get the lifeguard. Funny story, the lifeguard, when he came over, I'd already hiked up the hill and was sitting in the back of the truck. And, you know, when somebody gets injured like that, a lot of people like they have the right intentions and they want to help. Yeah, but you don't. If you don't know what you're doing, right? Stay away. That's right. You know what That's I mean. Right. Do more damage. Yeah, you do more damage. So, you know, Makua had gotten the lifeguard and came up when the lifeguard when I you know I took the compression wrap off my head that I was pushing on, and the lifeguard almost panicked a little bit too when he saw the injury, mm-hmm. and Makua saw that you know that the lifeguard wasn't handling the situation that well, so he actually took the wraps away from the lifeguard and wrapped my head himself, mm-hmm. and you know we drove to the urgent care and. You know, I kept telling them, just sew it up, just sew it up. But they were like, if you broke an artery in your head, you know, your head will blow up like Stewie from Family Guy, right? right. So I kept telling them to do it. And they were like, we can't do this. So I ended up having to go to Cedar Cyanide in Santa Monica and go to like a specialist. So you were in Hawaii when this happened? No, no, I was in California. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I was in Malibu. I went to the Malibu Urgent Care first. Got it. And they wouldn't, you know, they basically looked at my. You know, cleaned it out, but they were like, we can't do anything. This is way too gnarly. And so then I drove to Santa Monica. And so by the time I'd gotten there, we were talking about six hours between when it hit me to spending two or three hours at the urgent care with them cleaning it out and flushing it out, spending another hour and a half driving to Santa Monica in traffic. Makua had to get something to eat. (laughs) classic
2: <laughs> this is very, this is, he's working up an appetite yeah, with your yeah. Injury.
1: <laughs> so by the time that the surgeon had come and started working on me you're talking about like eight hours yeah. i lost a lot of blood yeah and they were like they wanted to put me under yeah. you know because it hit an artery in my head so it was like literally like one of those like horror movie things where like blood was squirting, squirting out, of out. It like that and they had to I guess they're so small and I'm, I didn't pay attention during any of that part of school, but it was <laughs> so small that they had to like clamp it off and, and then cauterize it, mm-hmm. but they had to like dig around in there for a while to find it. And long story short, because it was so close to my facial nerve, I'm so lucky that I don't have facial paralysis because if it would have hit that facial nerve, I would have had full facial paralysis, but they couldn't put Novocaine in it because they didn't want to hit that facial nerve. So, they wanted to put me under, yeah. which meant I would have to stay of the night and yeah. all that stuff. And so, basically, I did it. You know, I mean, they gave me like painkillers right. that I could swallow, but they didn't get to numb my face up at all so i basically just had to power through through it It. yeah it was it was Ah. it was one of the it was the most painful experience i've ever well that was my
2: next question because in the hospital right they have those that little diagram where they're like
1: rate your pain one through ten
2: and then the ten
1: i'm like god i hope i never have to experience a ten it was a 20 (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. boy and i got really lucky i mean obviously not lucky that it hit me right but it could have been a lot worse. Like yeah. the doctor was like, wow, like even when they were sewing me up, they were like, you know, if they would have hit the wrong thing, that nerve, I could have had full facial paralysis, which I'm not that attractive to begin You're with. you ugly so enough I don't already. To, I
2: don't need to.
1: I don't need. <laughs>
2: hey, it might have been an improvement. Yeah. You don't know.
1: <laughs> never thought of that. You never know. Uh, now I have this interesting. Earlobe, but if you look at sort of like the picture of when it happened compared to the aftermath, that surgeon wow, the guy was amazing! Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Worst injury of your life? I've had some pretty gnarly ones, but I think that one, like, yeah, definitely in the top three. But I've had some pretty good injuries for sure. But that was, yeah, that was definitely top three for sure. Just recently, I hyperextended my whole leg over my head. And tore the hamstrings off the muscle in my leg. So Boy, you really kid. take sex, uh, really? <laughs> you know, my, I mean, yeah, I gotta, I gotta take
2: notes. This is, this is a, this is a serious sport for you.
1: Yeah. What the hell were you doing? That was surfing. Yeah, I've had a good string of injuries. It turns out that when you're 47 and you act like you're 27, sometimes <laughs> yeah. you get hurt. <laughs> right.
2: Yeah, I know. It's funny. I just started training. Again, I used to do a lot of like endurance sports, like triathlons and stuff like oh, that. Awesome. And so, with the kiddos, like I just, you know, my fitness is taking a dive. But I'm trying to get back into it and I am. And my trainer, shout out to Ian Murray, you know, we were sitting down, you know, we first started working together and he was saying, you know, okay, now here's the deal. Like at your age, our number one concern is is injury and avoiding it. And I was like, "What do you mean, my age?" She's like, "Dude, you're 49." Yeah, <laughs> I was yeah. just like, "Oh shit!" Sometimes
1: <laughs> when you live the lives that we live, yeah. it's crazy because like life goes by like that, yeah, right? Because right. It's so fast. Next thing you know, you wake up and you're 49, right? right. Like yeah. wear and
2: tear. Funny story. <laughs> so when I was about 42, so at 40 I was in the best shape of my life. Probably I had done my second Ironman. You know, when I was That's 40, awesome. and so about 42, and I was still training, but I wasn't at that volume of training. But at 42, I was just feeling bad. I was having aches and pains and just – I was feeling weird. Like, I'd never felt that way before. So, I go into the doctor. I'm like, doc – and I'd had this doc for a long time through, you know, all these years of, you know, training or whatever. And so, my doc's like – I'm like, he's like, what's the problem? So, I explained to him, man, I'm feeling – I think something's seriously wrong. I've never felt this way before and I listed the symptoms. And then he looks at me and he goes, how old are you again? And I said, oh, I'm 42 now. And he just laughed and he said, Welcome to your forties, pal. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> you know? I was like, oh, interesting. Yeah. Right.
1: Uncharted waters, right? So when you're training for all those things, like when you got injured, you don't have any choice, right? You just have to power through it, right? It's like Well, I mean if it, you're gonna do a triathlon yeah, or something I mean, like you that. You know,
2: if you if your goal is to finish and you don't give a fuck, then yeah, you run through the pain or cycle or bike through the pain. I've been fortunate to on any race day feel good and well. The last half Ironman I did, I effectively DNF'd because I was so damn sick. I was sick when I started the race and I just got worse. And so, while I finished the distance, I didn't make the cutoff. So, Mm. it's weird because on one hand, it's the race and it was in Hanu. So, you know, the terrain was fucking hot and tough. I mean, that's a tough course. Mm. But while I DNF'd, so, you know, technically, you know, failed to finish, I'm the most proud of that race because I wanted to quit every second of just the last like you were on your deathbed you no i just yeah. wanted to quit the last second of of like the last four hours like i mean mm. it was just and but i just kept going and kept going and
1: so i'm proud of that you know but oh, that's but, badass you know. It's just that's yeah cool. you just you know you're like too stubborn you know yeah yeah well, <laughs> um, i think the same applies probably to some of the business stuff too right like sometimes you want to quit well, and you're like i'm yeah. too stubborn i gotta make this happen right yeah
2: it's you know it's it's I don't know if it's a working class thing or what, but like or a Midwest thing or what. I mean, I think it's work class things. I think when you come, you know, from a place where, you know, the work ethic is prevalent 100% of the time and you have examples of people who work through the pain, they get up and they do what's expected of them, whether they're, you know, feeling good or not or whatever. That's right. Yeah. That inspires you or you realize like, okay, this is the example that is being set for me, so I'm gonna, you know, live up to that or what have you, you know, and- Quitting isn't in the dialogue. No, yeah. fuck no. Yeah. And perseverance and tenacity and and endurance and so, yeah, I mean, grit, I guess they call it grit now, you yeah, know. Yeah.
1: We didn't get trophies for showing up. No, no, there was no participation trophies for sure. <laughs> no, that's cool. It's cool to hear too. I mean, look, my dad is 77 years old, swims three miles a day. Just did the Alcatraz swim on his 77th birthday. What a badass. Yeah. And it's like, so if he can do that, then, you know, yeah. I, I can power through a few injuries and be <laughs> all right. You know, Was I mean? he your biggest inspiration? Who was your biggest inspiration coming up? Yeah, him yeah. for sure. He was a really awesome human. And like when we were younger, he would, you know, he would always take me with him to stuff. You know what I yeah. mean? So it's like, I got to see a lot through that and yeah i would say he was my biggest inspiration yeah. for sure but you know different people inspire me in different ways you sure. know what i mean but yeah overall i would say he is for sure yeah what did he do he did a lot of different things funny enough he was a professional speaker for a while so he would go to like you know like if big corporation would have their you know meeting in san diego mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that he would be like the keynote speaker and he would go do that and you know was he always an athlete? Was he always swimming? Was he always- yeah, he was always athletic for yeah. sure, you know. I mean, back then, he still is a big skier. Mm-hmm. He skis, you know, still at 77. He's probably better than me. But yeah, he was, you know, very into snow skiing, water skiing, you know, clearly all those sports were pre you know, snowboarding yeah, or right. wakeboarding or anything like that, but so, yeah, he's he was very athletic for Is sure. Is he, he and your mom still together? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Are they still down still, in the San Diego area? No, Where are they no, they, my dad moved to Florida, which no offense to everybody in Florida, but <laughs> I, don't, I don't get that state at all, but he moved to Florida so that he could swim in the water that's warm yeah. all year round. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's his most important thing. Right, so, right, right. I, I, I totally respect that too, yeah, right? Right keep the body moving totally man yeah. totally and swimming is like they're learning more and more like that it's kind of the best sport all things considered. Oh, for sure yeah you know? and plus well i mean when you're 77 look like yeah low you know, impact. It, yeah low impact for sure because he still does nut stuff i mean he still skis and all those would things, you say but... you get
2: your discipline from him i where, think...
1: does, where does your discipline come from because you're a pretty disciplined dude yeah i would i would say i would probably say him for yeah. sure you know i've never put too much thought into it but he was always one of those people that when he set his mind to do something, he always accomplished it, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. I think that that's sort of where the discipline comes from. And for me, like part of when I was, look, when I was younger, like I would always go to work and do my thing when everybody else was partying and drinking. Yeah, right. And part of it might have been discipline. The other yeah. part was I didn't want to get in trouble, you know yeah, what I right, mean? So, right. I, like where everybody else was partying, fighting yeah, yeah. and getting thrown in jail, right. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't seem too oh, awesome. Yeah, I'm just no. going to go over here and work. You yeah. know what I mean? And, you know, like, that's so interesting that you say that.
2: You and I actually have so much in common because a buddy of mine, you know, told me a while ago, it was funny, he said, he's like, you know what your superpower is and and was? And he said, your superpower is... You always knew when to leave the party. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <You know? laughs> and, yeah, and, if, if you could hone that skill and put it into an app, you'd yeah, be a good Go now. <laughs> you get the alert. Yeah, for um, sure. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, you know, the question
2: really on the table at the time was like, well, how didn't you, you know, power sourdough? How did you not get into trouble and go to rehab or whatever? Because, you know, you were partying too, you know? Mm. And I was like, well, I mean, A, clearly I don't have that gene that maybe would lead to addiction or whatever, but mm. but I also just had bigger dreams and goals. Like, yeah. I, I liked my work. I yeah. wanted
1: to go to work every day because I enjoyed what I was doing. Yeah. I had
2: other goals.
1: Yeah, that's know? right. Yeah, somebody, like, I barely drink anymore at all. And somebody asked me the other day, they were like, do you stop drinking because you had a problem with it or you don't like it. And I was like, no, no, just nothing to do with that at all. It had to do with the fact that hangovers now take me four days to get over. And I don't have Have four days of drag ass time on my hands. So, like, if I know that if I drink one night, I'm going to – Underperform in the boxing gym the next morning and yep. get my ass handed to me by some kid I'm sparring. <laughs> I also know if when I go to work, I'm going to be tired and you know what I mean? Yep. And just so I don't not drink because I just don't want to deal with the next four days. That's right. I actually like drinking, yeah. It's, yeah, just yeah, yeah. The, it's just the aftermath sucks, right? <laughs> it,
2: it, it's so true. And it's funny because, you know, I became a dad late in life at 42. And it was really interesting because, you know, I had an extended adolescence, you know, into through my 40s and 40s. I didn't have any dependents. I mean, I was free. You know, my wife and I, you know, we were very independent people, you know. And so, you know, I was going out with the boys, you know, on a regular basis right. up until I was 42, you know. <laughs> but I could be hung over the next day, yeah. right, if I chose to do that. And then suddenly I become a dad and it's like, your kids don't give a fuck no no i are. mean they you know and you know i don't want to be hung over for them you know yeah. i want to be present for them That's right true. so basically the the joke is that like i do the calculus and the calculus basically is okay wait a minute hey yo Let's go out and party. Let's do something. Okay, wait. Let, let me run the numbers. Let me do the calculus. Can I be hungover tomorrow? Yes or no? No. Okay. No, I can't go. <laughs> you
1: know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
2: You know, and people say, "Well, why can't you just go out and drink drink in moderation?" I'm like, "Have you met me? Boring. <laughs> Boring. <laughs> Who does
1: that? <laughs> yeah. If I'm gonna do it. I'm going all in. That's right, man.
2: Fucking bring a helmet, man. You know, <laughs> this is a this is a contact sport. Maybe
1: it's good that we. Didn't didn't meet each other in the drinking years. It right? might <laughs> be.
2: It might be. Well, a funny story, right? So, man one and I were in Chicago, you know, two years ago or something for a project. And, you know, we had never been in Chicago together at the same time, you know, and of course, that's my home turf, right? So, I told him, he's like, oh, he's like, you know, I'm stoked, you know, to go with you to Chicago, whatever. And I said, yeah, and so we did the project, everything. And so, of course, all my boys – we're like, yeah, you know, we gotta we wanna meet man one. We wanna get together. And so it was, you know, typical plan. You know, we're gonna meet out at Tavern on Rush. As yeah, a living legend for sure. Yeah, yeah. And and so we're we're gonna meet these guys. But I tell man, I said, you know, before we leave the hotel, I'm like, okay, look, here's the deal. I'm just telling you right now that these guys are professional drinkers and you cannot keep up. I'm just telling <laughs> you, okay. You know, I, we've known each other, what? Seventeen years now, you know you're a, you're a moderate drinker. That's awesome. These guys are professionals, so just and I say here's what's going to happen. Okay, you're we're going to meet them. They're going to love you. They're going to automatically order a round of shots and drinks for everybody. What's going to happen is there's going to be multiple quick rounds, like two or three rounds, right? And there's what you're going to feel is a jet stream, and that jet stream is going to try to suck you in to what will end up becoming a four, five, six hour session of drinking, right? And do not let yourself get sucked in. You just you cannot survive this. And he's like, he's like, oh, I got this, I got this, I got this. Well, cut to four in the morning. Oh <laughs> <Right>? yeah. <laughs> we end up in Dublin's, you know, to like eat, and man's just like <laughs> sitting there, Just slurring and, words yeah, and we, not doing. Yeah, I, I was like, nudge, no, I'm like, I told you, man, I told you, you can't handle this shit. So the next morning we wake up at the hotel, and he just looks at me, and he's got this like wide eyed look. He's like, holy shit. He goes, your friends are insane. <laughs> he's like, he's like, I understand you so much better now.
1: <laughs> he should have listened. So, See, I, that's I, another classic story of when the artist should have listened to Scott. <laughs> that's, right,
2: that's right. That's right. I tried to save those brain cells of yours and uh, you, you wouldn't listen, you know. So, you know, in the intro, I talked about you being a movie producer. What are you working on now? What movies are you working on right now?
1: The same team that we did- Or excuse me, I did Saving Banksy with Brian Greif. Did another project that we still haven't come up with a final name for it yet, but the working title was the Underbelly Project. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure a lot of people are probably familiar with it. But you know, Logan Hicks and Jordan got together. You know, hundred artists went underneath a subway, abandoned subway in New York, and basically did some of the most incredible murals in a place where nobody was ever going to see them, right? And so, the whole thing was documented, of course, you know, the twist of the thing was was eventually the New York Times did a story on what they were doing. And to me that, I mean, props to them to Jordan and Logan because that to me is the quintessential doing things for the right reasons, right? Like that's doing the art for the art and every artist that went down there and dedicated their time and dedicated their work to the project, that's super cool. But they did a story in the New York Times about it during this whole process. And, you know, they left everybody's name out of it. The police station was literally right on top of the subway. So when the police saw the article, let's just say I don't think that they liked it very much. And they literally, like, you know, made like a little task force to go after. I mean, they the reaction to it was just you know, and obviously it was post nine eleven, and yeah. you know, you're talking about New York subways and all those kind of things. But the reaction was just like sort of monumentally ridiculous, right? So yeah. the um, art part was lost on the PD. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. They didn't. Yeah, they didn't. Yeah, they, let's just say they Does weren't art compute. connoisseurs. Yeah, yeah they right. weren't really. Yeah. So, I mean, you know. People were literally like moving out of the city and hiding hard drives and, you know, as crazy as it was. And obviously, I wasn't there to go through that experience. But, you know, I'm glad that they documented it well enough to be able to tell the story now. But it makes for a very interesting documentary and a very interesting story. And so, that's the latest one. And then we're doing another one about CBS, Graffiti Crew out here. So, the one with Logan and Jordan will be – come out next and then the one with about CBS.
2: Will so. they stream on Netflix when they come out like Saving Banksy did? Um Hoping.
1: Yeah. Hoping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that, uh, I mean, do you have a
2: distribution plan in place right now we, or? We don't. We're,
1: yeah. we're going to go shop the films, you know, we're going to shop the Underbelly Project first mm-hmm. and see who's the right partner for it. Yeah, yeah. right, right, right. But... What are your average budgets for these movies, roughly, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, no, they're not a lot. Like people would think like, you know, going back to the earlier conversation of of people's perceptions, right? Like, you know, these movies don't make a lot of money. No, right. Like us, for the people that are in the art world, right? Like, of course, we enjoy them, right? But the audience is still a small audience, yep. right? So. You're not talking about millions of dollars, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? And with the scale of economics, the budgets are in the same realm as what you're making back, right? So like when we set out to make a documentary like this, like the goal is always just to break even, right? right? Hopefully, you know, like anything and not to use a bunch of business terminology, their annuities, right? So, they're going to pay off over a course of time. And like, I believe that like we are in the early stages of, we're living and breathing in the early stages of an art wave and movement, right? That will be celebrated for decades to come, right? So, with that, you know, the idea on the the business side is, is those documentaries will forever be interesting, forever be evergreen pieces that people want to watch to to see what the beginning of this movement was, right? But in the short term, talking about, you know, having to pay your bills and break even and run a business, right? In the short term, the goal is really just to break even on these things. Right. So but, you know, I think look, I think that they're important movies and important stories to tell, or else I wouldn't spend my time doing them. But for me, like I'm listed as a producer on all the movies, mm-hmm. right? But there's a lot of people that deserve a lot more pat on the backs and credits than just Kevin Zinger does, right? Sure, because sure. I'm like this. The stories are there. It's a team sport. Yeah, it's a team, yeah, and, yeah. and I add something different than you know my connection to the music business and my connection to understanding of how to market things and like in the traditional sense of putting out a movie, I play a different role, you know what I mean? On the creative side, you know, my input is like, there's a ton of people that are in the weeds getting that movie far enough along before I'm actually even putting my input into it, right? So like on the creative side of things, I'm very much top view sort of like a lot of people have put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into it before I start to put my- sure you know, two cents into it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. Well, there are so many stories to tell, man. I mean, we tried to, you know, get into the whole movie-making biz. Earlier in the summer, a project fell into our lap, and it was just too much too soon. But I had met, I don't know if you're, you know, Burning Man guy or whatever, but there was an artist at Burning Man that, over the last five years, had been building a 747. On the playa at Burning Man, and he bought the 747 from the boneyard in the Mojave Desert, you know, five years ago. And over the last five years, has been him and 1,000 volunteers have been <laughs> rebuilding this fucking 747. That's badass. It's badass, right? And I discovered I've only been a Burning Man twice. I went for the first time two years ago. And I fucking danced on the wings. Right. <laughs> of the hey, not many people to say they yeah. danced
1: on the wings of a seven forty seven? I mean, so it that, was off that, the charts. Yeah, you know yeah.
2: what I mean? At three in the morning, there's lasers. Like, you know what I mean? The I'm DJ- sure you were
1: sober on that
2: too. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, hundred percent. Can with drugs and, and alcohol at Burning Man, please? So it was epic, right? And long story short, I ended up meeting the artist like last summer, and he's in Venice. His name's Ken Feldman, and he, I mean he. I call him the artist. I mean, he's like us. I mean, he's just like, oh, very reluctant to like take credit, because, you know, a thousand volunteers. I mean, clearly he couldn't have done it and didn't do it by himself. Mm. But he was, you know, he and his partner like spearheaded it. And so but he's telling me that this was like the last year, that they were selling it. He was way in the red, like, you know, fucking, you know, just, you know, it was a money pit. And they needed to make it, get their money back. So, but there was this developer, I guess, in Vegas who's developing the shit, what's it called? Area 15 or something where Meow Wolf is going in and what have you. Oh, but yeah. Like they, yeah. Um, they wanted to install the 747 there as, as a tourist attraction. Mm. And so, he had this opportunity to sell it. So, it might get his money back. So, he was saying, yeah, this is the last year for the 747. Well, he's telling me this in like July. You know, well, Burning Man's Labor Day weekend, basically. Mm. And I said, well, you know, have you been documenting this? Are you making a movie? Like, what do you, you know, he's like, oh, I wish, you know, we just don't have the bandwidth. We don't have the time. He's like, why can you help me do that? I said, hell yeah, I could help you do that. And so, we put a pitch together. He loved our pitch and, you know, licensed the right, you know, gave us the rights to make the movie. But I never thought Burning Man would give us the rights to make the movie, you know, because they never fucking do that shit. Well, we put in our application, and the first of August, we get word that they love the project and want to approve it. You know,
1: oh, that's cool. Well,
2: it was great, except um, it's except like, except then me. I got to find a million bucks yeah. in four <laughs> weeks. In <laughs> four weeks,
1: didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, didn't happen. That's that's a difficult raise. It's a difficult weeks. raise. Yeah.
2: We came, cl- I mean, you know, it was interesting, as you know, right? I mean, it's People say no for all kinds of reasons, right? That have nothing to do with the merit of the project, you know? So, for example, my buddy over at Apple who's been a Burning Man 17 times, like he's knows this project. He's danced on the wings himself, you know? <laughs> like, okay, like I call him up and I'm like, yo, boy, do I have a project for you. And I tell him about it. He's like, are you kidding me? Like, you got the fucking rights to do that? Like, that's amazing. And he said, of course, I want to make your movie. He said, but – quite frankly, we're a mess right now. He's like, I don't know how I would justify it. I don't know where it would go. I don't know what we do. And you know, he works for Apple, you know what, <laughs> what I mean? And he's like, I can't, he's like, I want to say yes, but I can't say yes, you know? Right. And I'm like, okay, you know, get it, you know, you know, called my, my, another friend of mine who I know runs a movie studio, goes to Burning Man, you know, he's like, love the project, just not right for us. Okay, yeah. cool. Well, I called Netflix. You know, I happen to know someone over there. Yeah. You know what <laughs> I mean? Well, it turns out Netflix was looking for a Burning Man project. Like they were, they've been in the market for something. And when they took a close look at it, they loved it, but they just felt like it was too niche in the end. But the art part was too niche. Yeah. Well, we really were, were we were like, look, this is a non narrative, this is a visual poem. The pitch mm. was, we want to honor this epic art project with an epic art film mm. and we want to win art we want to win awards for this as an art film we're not this is a non-narrative it's heavy music you know the soundtrack's going to be you know we're going to get Trent Reznor to do the soundtrack or whatever mm. right and we're bringing in helicopters and Drones and 5K cameras, and you know what I mean? Like, we threw, we wanted to put the money in the glass and make this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful film. Yeah. And that's why it was a million bucks, you know. And at the end of the day, that's what Burning Man liked. That's what Ken liked. And ultimately, Netflix respected the idea, but just felt like it was too niche. Yeah. And, but you know, you know, as well as I do that if they had loved it, if they felt like it was right, they would have. Made it happen, and we would have
1: made it happen one way or another. So, anyway, I mean, it's uh, no, I get it. I mean, look, there's there's millions of projects that are badass projects, but they don't fit in the realm of the dialogue or whatever that company wants at that given time. You know what I mean? That's right. And that's that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Is is we understand that right, and we can translate that back to people that might not understand that. Right? You know what I mean? That's right. But that's a bummer because I would have liked to watch that. No, that's what
2: everyone, everyone <laughs> was like. Oh, they were so sad because they were like really excited yeah. to see it. And Ken was a champ. I mean, I, you know, I met up with him, you know, at Burning Man, and and you know, he totally got it. He's like, he's like, well, he's like, trust me. He goes. You know, it was crazy as this project has been, I did not have my hopes up. <laughs>
1: you know, he's like, he's like, I, I totally get it. Don't even worry about it. You yeah. Know? Well, as a documentary geek, I would have really liked to have seen that one. But oh, well.
2: Uh, oh, well. On to the next.
1: Yeah. There are many, many I'm more. I'm also probably the only human being in Southern California who's in either music or art or fashion that hasn't been to Burning Man. But one day I've got to go there. Bur-
2: Bur- listen, here's my take on Burning Man. As a creative person as a creative professional i feel like it is required reading mm. you know like you gotta go and see it once right it is truly epic what is done for one week for the love of the game this ephemeral thing that everybody that, so all these people pour their love and blood sweat and tears mm-hmm. into making art and you know bringing their gifts to this community that rises from the dust for a week. It's pretty mind-blowing. And, you know, but it's hard. I mean, it's a, it's hard to get to. It's it's a, this is what I say about Burning Man. A couple of things. One is because people say, "Well, what's Burning Man like?" I say, "Well, if Barnum and Bailey and Salvador Dali and the Grateful Dead had a love child in the desert,
1: it would be Burning Man." <laughs> it might be Burning like, Man. That's a good analogy. <laughs> right, right, I like that. <laughs> right. So
2: that's that's one model. Yeah. The other thing I say about Burning Man is that if you don't like camping, mm. and especially in extreme conditions, you so, may not Burning like Man is Burning not for Man. You, yeah. right? If you like art, you're probably going to like Burning Man. If you like music, especially EDM, you're probably going to like Burning Man. If you like cosplay, costume play, you're probably going to like Burning Man. <laughs> if you like being greeted with a hug from strangers you've never met before, you might like Burning Man. (laughs) If you like white people, you
1: might like Burning Man.
2: If you don't like any of those things, you may not like Burning Man, and you might be a racist.
1: That was the best Burning Man analogy I've ever heard. I like that. (laughs) That's it. I like about half of those
2: things. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, and I, you know, I got my first invitation to go in like 96 and, you know, I'm a big outdoors guy. I love camping. And I just always felt like, well, if I'm going to spend the time and energy to go in the middle of nowhere, I don't want to be with 50,000 other people. Mm. You know, I want to be by myself. Yeah. Or with a very small select group of people that I, you know, want to hang out with. But there was part of me that eventually just got sick and tired of people inviting me <laughs> you know, or, or me saying, no, I haven't been. And I'm like, fuck,
1: I just got to go, go check, check this it thing out. out and see what it's about. Yeah. I think my take on it is, was always like in the early days, I was like, you know, when it first started, I was like, Bernie, man, I don't need to go there. I'm living that. Like, that's right. no problem. Yeah. And then later, I think my hesitation to going was like, that I missed the magic part of it, right? Yeah. That I miss the special right. part of right. it? Did it like, because like most things, right? As it gets bigger, evolves, right? There's a little bit of the original mindset is lost. So I thought that. And then recently I've changed my mind a little bit only because this guy, Alex, who was like the developer behind the Mayfair Hotel, nice guy. And I mean, he, when you say like, life-changing. I think that's a little bit of a stretch, but literally you can see the energy in his face when he talks about it. You know what I mean? And he's like, like, you have to go. You have to go. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so- so he's sort of like brought me to the other side where maybe I've got to go well, check that, it out once.
2: That's what I was getting, and and that's why I'm like I'm sick of this. Like like I got to go. <laughs> you yeah, know yeah. What I mean, just to shut these guys up, <laughs> <you know? laughs> get them out of my face. You know, my buddy actually has a pretty cool camp there, and so it is interesting. And you know, and I and I hear you. Like you know, this idea of like did the magic. You know, because, so, you know, the OG burners are like, oh, yeah. They're over it probably. Well, I mean, you know, it's interesting. There is – in, in talking to them because they definitely romanticize the early days. Mm. But you also th- – when you think about what it is now and what it was then, like, sure, maybe, like, there was bigger bombs and, yes, maybe there were guns being fired and maybe the orgies were bigger or whatever. But – Now, like, there are lasers and sound systems and colors that are just electrifying this landscape that wasn't happening then, right? right, you know, and so, it's different and uh, is it better? Who knows, but it is different and it's certainly, it's fucking cool, you know, what people do. I mean, to give you an example, right, so, we were riding our bikes last year because you got to have bikes to get Mm. around there, you know, and... And it was like 2 in the morning, we're riding back. And you you have to, just for safety, you have to illuminate your bike, you know, so you're putting lights on there so you don't fucking crash into anything. And so, we're riding along and somebody says, what the hell is that? And we stop and we look up and in the sky and, and you know, I might've been under the influence of, you know, any number of things. No, uh, and, uh, and I look up. I would hope and, so. Yeah. And I look up and in my intoxicated perspective at first, what I see is this amorphous shape in the sky that is like just shape-shifting. And at first you think, holy fuck,
1: Mushrooms are awesome. Well, yeah, right.
2: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. These are great mushrooms, right? So you're like, "Fuck, what is that?" And then you know, you you've, you you kind of cut through, and you're like watching it, and then you realize, like, "Oh wait, that's like 400 drones that are dancing in oh that's bad in, ass. Or in a in a choreographed organized way." No shit, and huh? you're watching, and we're watching for 10 minutes these 400 drones do this dance and then after about 10 minutes then they all kind of swarm together, come back down and land in their hive like a bunch of bees, right? And then it's over, right? Well, yeah, I was like, holy fuck. Now, I found out later that what this is, the the artist that put this together, he started with 200 drones like on the first night. Every night he added 200 more drones. He did one performance a night and by the end of the week, there were what fourteen hundred drones or something, right? What's what's six times two hundred? So but is he controlling them all? Yeah, or so, is it's there so they're all
1: programmed. Gotcha. So like basically, they're programmed where the GPS is. That's keep, right. Yeah, yeah.
2: And so they're just all doing That's their pretty dance. Cool though. And but it was the thing about it was. We only saw it because we happened to be there at the right moment, at the right time, and someone noticed it, and it was just this magical thing that much like those club days back in San Diego, if you weren't there, you You don't know, and we happened to be there, we know, and it's like that kind of artistry, that kind of ephemeral you know, love and beauty. You know is kind of what yeah. what you get to as a special witness. moment. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. a cool moment. Yeah, that's you know? awesome. Yeah. So anyway, I like that. that's Burning Man, brother. Hey, listen, I'm looking at the clock. You're a busy man. I you got to <laughs> be somewhere, my friend. It is like one o'clock. Yeah. God forbid I make you late for yet another hot date. <laughs> what's uh, what's your afternoon look like?
1: I have to go to Universal actually to talk to our – They distribute – Their independent wing distributes a couple of our record labels. Awesome. So, I've got – There's a few projects that, you know, I'm excited about all the projects that we do. So, I don't want that to come off the wrong way. But there's a few that you just – You get really excited about that you put your passion behind as well as the work. So, kind of going out to go check that out. Right on. There's this kid – amigo the devil that i've started working with a couple years ago and he's the to me the best songwriter that i've come across in decades wow and he writes like they call it murder folk he writes a lot about serial killers and but he does it from the perspective of like like almost learning like life lessons from them you know what i mean (laughs) right and and he does it in a very clever way. It's and the music is just incredible. But yeah. All so right. anyway, it's gonna go have a meeting about that. Right. And what's his Amigo the Devil. Amigo the Devil. Yeah, All yeah. right, <laughs> I'll have to
2: check him out. Yeah. Excellent. Well, yeah, that's why I would say if I could learn Vicariously through serial
1: killers, I don't have to become one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Not a very good long term uh, job perspective being a serial killer. But
2: I remember growing up outside Chicago
1: when they discovered, you know, John Wayne Gacy's fucking backyard. Yeah. Uh, I was just in Austin, Texas. And funny enough, the mayor of Austin, Texas made November 16th amigo the devil day so full proclamation right like yes yeah, so like the whole nine yards of the city so i flew out there for it and i stayed at his house amigo's house and he had two or three original Artwork pieces by John Wayne Gacy. No kidding. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know. <laughs> Not exactly the, my style, the, the, but yeah, I, right. appre- I, I, I appreciate it. <laughs> Not the, your uh, aesthetic. Yeah, no. <laughs> but you appreciate. He was keeping it real. The Let's thought, just put the it that thoughtfulness. Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, Kevin Singer, man, such an honor, privilege yeah, to sit down with you. you.
1: Thank you very much.
2: Will you, uh, will you come back someday? Anytime, anytime. Right, my friend. Appreciate we'll, you. Appreciate you. Thanks, brother. All right, man. Peace right right out. Cool. Hey there, thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and share it with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please be sure to press subscribe and follow us on IG at NotRealArtificial. We appreciate the support. Sourdough. Out.